Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. We look at the stock market and why it goes up and down. We look at financial legislation that could impact your bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we look at financial planning topics in more detail to help you understand them a little bit better. And then finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question. So if you'd like to submit a question to the show, go to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and click the link and you can submit a question. Then I will contact you, get a little bit more information so we can be sure I have all that I need, and then I'll structure an answer that can be educational for the listeners. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears report. And remember, I'm not wanting to focus as much on just the stock market this year. I'd rather really help you understand some of the details of investing and just look at the market from time to time. We talked about volatility last week. So if you had a chance to hear the show, you can go back and listen to that segment again. Or if you didn't hear the show, you can go to my podcast, which is on CastBox and iTunes. It's Ask Peggy Doviak About Your Finances. You know, basically volatility is how much a stock moves from its average return. So today, I want to talk about a financial measurement that's related to this. You know, when we look at how we do in an investment, we see what the return is. Wow, great, we made 10%, or we made 8%, or we lost 5%. You know, we look to see how did we do. And as a raw number, it's good to keep up with that. However, remember that you take risk in order to earn your return. So sometimes it's good to look at your return as a product of how much risk you took. So how much return for every unit of risk did you make? And the way you calculate that is through the Sharp Ratio. And that's S-H-A-R-P-E. And it was developed by a Nobel Prize winner named William Sharp, very smart guy in finance. And he came up with this formula that lets you see how you did in a risk-adjusted basis. And if you go to my Facebook page, AskPeggy.com, or AskPeggy, I'm going to post a link to this article. So if you want to read it again, you can get some information. This was my source material that I used for today. You can look it up in a textbook. It's all about the same thing. But I'm going to try to give you some information you can go and read if you want to learn more. The formula for the SHARP is the return of your investment, so how much you made, minus the risk-free rate divided 
by the standard deviation of the investment. Now, do not let your eyes glaze over. This isn't hard, and once you get it, it makes sense as to why we use these variables. So the return is what you think it is. When you look at your raw return, there you are. That's your return. The risk-free rate is the rate of return you would earn on a government security. Often, it's a treasury bill that's used for this. And the idea of subtracting out the return of the treasury bill is you should be able to count on making that no matter what you're invested in. So you want to look at your risk premium. Remember, you want to make more money because if all you're getting is what you should have gotten for taking no risk, then you haven't had a good investment. So how much you made minus the risk-free rate. So that risk premium then divides by the standard deviation. We defined standard deviation last week. Let me do it again this week. So imagine that you have a whole bunch of returns of an investment plotted on a grid. And those returns for a one-year period of time, they might be kind of close together and they might be spread apart. If they're close together, you've got a greater confidence to expect a return similar to that group in the future. If they're scattered all over the place, maybe you get a great return next year. Maybe you get a not-so-great return next year. And that creates a risk. That is the rough definition of standard deviation. How close to the average do the returns tend to be? So, if they're very wide, you've got a huge standard deviation. If they're very narrow, you have a small standard deviation. So, by dividing the return by the risk, that's letting you see how much return did you get per unit of risk. Now, a sharp ratio, if it's a 1 when you do that division, that's considered pretty good. Um, if it's less than one, it means that you've underperformed. Most of the time, your sharp ratio is going to come out to be one point something, or it's going to be in the high numbers close to one, but like maybe 0.89. So as long as you're one, that's where you would be if you were indexing, if all of the math has worked. So if you like to index, if you've got a sharp of one, you're in great shape. If you've got a sharp of 0.89, it's not as good. If you've got a sharp of 2, that's better. Now, here's the thing. If you're trying to decide between two investments and everything else is equal, you want to choose the one that gives you more return per unit of risk. So you wouldn't just look at the raw return because when you look at that, oh, wow, look, this stock made 18% and this stock made 5 For sure, I want to buy the 18 Not so fast. You want to see how much risk you took to, got, to get that 18 how much risk you took to get the 5 So what you do instead is you look at the sharp ratios. And the one that has the higher sharp ratio, all other factors being equal, is giving you on average more return per unit of risk. It's a really cool tool, especially if you're trying to decide between investments. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I want to talk 
in specific about something that a candidate for office said. And then I want to talk in general about things that you can do this spring to help you decide how to vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I'm going to give you some ideas legislatively of things to look for. So, a major candidate running for office, and I'm not going to use the name because I'm not on this show to have any sort of a political agenda. Okay, but a major candidate running for the Democratic um, nomination has said that if nominated, they will attempt to restore the Department of Labor fiduciary standard. Now, if you are a follower of me at all, you know that those are words to my ears because I believe that your financial professional should always act as your fiduciary. Now, of course, presidents, no matter who they are of what party, typically can't act in a bubble. So other things would have to happen for the fiduciary rule to come back. But as I was reading that, it reminded me of um, another writing that I had done much earlier on the importance of knowing the issues, having an opinion on the issues, and then researching how the candidates that you're looking at believe. I think it's very easy. It seems like right now in politics, everything is emotion and hype and mudslinging and nastiness. And I don't think that's a really great way to choose your candidate. What I would like to suggest that you do is look at those issues you really care about and then find the candidate that lines up on that. When I'm trying to look at things related to my um, position in financial literacy as a financial planner, I am always interested in how transparent a candidate wants financial services to be. I believe that it's very important that financial services should operate in a way that's transparent. That means you should know the fees that whoever's advising you is getting paid. You should know how those fees are earned. You should understand your investments. I I dislike anything that's in a black box. And so I think that transparency in financial services is really important. Possibly even more important than the fiduciary standard. Now, I know anybody who who listens, that's rare for me to say it, but think about it. If a financial advisor says, yes, I'm making a 9% commission on what I'm selling you, and it's locked up for nine years um, because that's what the company is making me do, and every year the fees are going to be 3%, and you decide to buy it, I, I say go for it. Because I want people to know what they're buying, and I want them to know what they're doing. Now, is that sort of investment in the client's best interest? I don't know. I don't know the rest of the details. If I were the client, I would continue to ask questions. The fiduciary standard is tricky because it's vague. It's easy to say, oh, yes, I'm acting in the client's best interest, 
I thought this was in their best interest. So, you know, in a weird way, transparency kind of helps get around some of that. But still, I think that whoever is working with your money should be willing to hold a legal standard of acting in your best interest. So I'm, I'm a fan of that. I am a fan of a um, Federal Reserve that acts based off of economic data. I just think that you have to look at your issues. I have other opinions, but this is a finance show. And so I'm just telling you the couple of things that I think are really important from a financial perspective. And then you need to go through all of those things that matter to you, and you need to decide what issues do you want to vote on, and then quit looking to see how many tweets something got retweeted or how many pundits are on a TV talk show telling you to vote. You should do your own research. You should vote. But above everything else, you should vote. Super Tuesday is coming up in Oklahoma. We're going to the ballots really soon. If you're in another state and you're voting on Super Tuesday, you need to vote. If your primaries are later, do your research. But it's very important that everybody vote. Money, 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 money. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. A recent study by Mass Mutual found that baby boomers and their millennial and Gen X kids are not talking about money very much. Specifically, this was looking at how much millennials knew about their parents' financial situation. And the answer is, they don't know a lot. Now, interestingly, um, 80% of them thought that they should know about their parents' financial situation as they were making their own financial plans for the future, 68% were thinking about what would happen if their parents outlive their money. So it's very important that you think about these things. Going on into the study, um, 67%, so almost the same number, thought that they would have to make um, decisions financially for their parents as they aged. However, only 47% thought that it was really important to talk to their parents about money. So what we have is a situation where 67% of the people think they're going to have to help their parents with the money, but only 47% thought it was important to talk about it. So, you know, sometimes financial planning is very quantitative. It's very numbers-based. Sometimes financial planning is much more people skills based. And I think talking to your parents about their financial situation is a very tricky thing to do. I almost wonder if that 47%, it wasn't that they didn't think it matters, that they didn't want to have the conversation. So as your parents are getting older, 
I think it's really important that you, as the adult child, talk to them about their future wishes, about how many resources they have, and then begin to create a plan before your parents need it as to what to do. This should be a conversation that you walk into with the intention of having the conversation. It shouldn't be the outgrowth of something else, especially if one of you is upset and the situation is almost like an argument. You know, many times we kind of get into a squabble with someone and then halfway through, we just start throwing random stuff into the mix. And throwing money into the mix of a fight is very common. That is not how you should talk to your parents about money. Whether they're mad at you, whether you're mad at them, you know, don't do that. And when you sit down to talk to them, You've got to be really non-judgmental. People sometimes make bad financial decisions for really good reasons. It doesn't mean financially they're okay, but it also doesn't mean that they're a terrible person either, and it doesn't mean they were wasting money. So it is what it is, and you need to find out what they want. Now, once you know what they want, You need to talk to your family before you make any great pronouncements. So in other words, don't start talking to your parents about money and halfway through, before talking to your significant other, you say, hey, why don't you move in with us? Because it sounds really great to have a senior parent move in. Oh, that's awesome. But it does make changes in a household, and there may not be a spare bedroom. And what are you going to do as the person ages? What does your spouse, your significant other, your children, is this something that realistically you guys can actually do? Because sometimes the answer to that question is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. And again, this is a judgment-free episode. If you guys can't do it, you can't do it. But you need to have known that and have that whole situation clear in your mind before you make an offer that then you feel like you can't retract. So talk to your family, see what the options are. Find out when you're talking to your parents what kind of support network they already have in place. They may not want to move in with you. They may be really happy with where they are. So rather than just assuming that everything is messed up, find out what they're doing. Find out how they're making sure they take their medicines on time. How are they getting places? Are they driving after dark? If they aren't, have you taught them about Uber? Have you taught them that grocery stores deliver? You know, I think one of the very remarkable things about where we are in 2020 is the number of services that are either free or really inexpensive that we haven't had since my great-grandmother, who had her groceries delivered. Nobody delivered groceries when I was little. I'm 53. So it's amazing what you can do. Talk to your parents. Make a plan. Maybe they want to stay where they are. And maybe it's just one parent, but they've got a great support network of friends that take care of each other. 
you know, you don't have to assume just because they're 70, they need to go do something. 70 isn't what it used to be. Now, the flip side of that is things can be bad and you know that they're bad and the parents are not necessarily wanting to kind of own up, admit, recognize that there's a problem. So there's times you need to be more encouraging of a change, but you should start by listening. Finally, make sure you have all the legal documents in place. It is very important that you have a power of attorney for health care. Now, if your parents are married, then probably the spouse is the power of attorney for health care. But I recently learned that you can have a contingency power of attorney so that the spouse is the first person and you're the second. So that if something were to happen to both of them, God forbid, at the same time, you could step in and handle things. Power of attorney for finance. Do they want a living will? You need to know what they want at the end of their life. These are really hard conversations to have. If your parents aren't keen about giving you a power of attorney, remember they can be created with a springing power. In a springing power of attorney, there's no power of attorney at all until the person who has it is incapacitated and then the power of attorney kicks in. So you don't actually have power of attorney until they really need for you to have it. So talk to an estate attorney, talk to your parents, look at the money, how much is there, make decisions before it's crisis mode. I know people don't want to do this. It's so important, but these conversations can fix everything down the road. You'll be glad you did it. Money. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Remember, if you'd like to submit a question to the show, go to askpeggy.com and click the button and submit your question. Then maybe you'll get to hear it on the air and I'll present something that's educational for our listeners. Why do I say educational every single time we do this segment? It's because I can't give you financial advice over the radio. No one can give you financial advice over the radio. There's many of you out there. All I can do is provide some information and some things to think about and some questions to ask your financial team who can then, knowing your personal situation, help you craft a solution that'll work. You know, I can't say, oh, you should go do this or you should do that because too many things impact your life. So I don't ever want people thinking that when they listen to something, they should necessarily run out and go do it. You should talk to your financial team, do some research, make sure it applies to you, make sure it's in your risk tolerance and it fits your financial plan. 
That's really what that disclaimer is, but I think we tend to just tune disclaimers out. And the truth is, anybody who thinks over the radio they can tell a whole listenership what they should be doing really is generalizing in ways that I think are super dangerous. But there is a great question today that probably does apply to you if you're following this practice. So the question is: Didn't the IRS used to let you take a small amount of cash as a charitable donation, even if you didn't have a receipt? The answer is yes. They absolutely did. You used to have a line on your charitable donations that said cash, and there was a dollar amount you couldn't go over, but it was. Fairly generous, and you could write in the amount you had given in cash over the year, maybe、um, to your house of worship, maybe to someone ringing a bell outside of a department store. But you can't do that anymore. Now you have to have a receipt, or a canceled check, or a credit card statement. Or a Venmo receipt, depending upon how contemporary the place you're donating to is, that shows how much money you gave. So what this means is, if you're wanting to make a larger donation, maybe you are very generous over the holidays and you like to put money into the bell. Well, go ahead and write a check and put that check. One time into the bucket when you're outside of the store, and then just keep some one-dollar bills so that you can give them the rest of the time. That way, you're able to give, but you get credit for the larger part of the receipt, because people really aren't aware that they can't take that. If you're not giving cash, if you're giving items, the IRS has also changed the quality of the item. You can't just give anything and call it a charitable donation. Things have to be in good condition or better, so that you can't take your broken things unless they're easily fixed and donate them and write off the cost of a new appliance, because that's not fair. And the IRS has figured out the people are doing that. So now the items that you give need to be good. Depending on the dollar value of those gifts, you may need to get them appraised before you give them. So if you're thinking about giving a car to charity or a boat to charity or something else that's expensive, find out. Talk to your CPA. Talk to your certified financial planner practitioner. Find out the dollar amount that requires the validation that it's really worth what you're saying it is. Those numbers have a tendency to change every year, so it's more important to know to ask than to know what the dollar amounts every single year are because they'll change. If an item is in excellent shape. And you're taking a fairly large deduction for it. Personally, I take a picture of the item, so that if there's a question from the IRS later of why did you give this the value that you did, I can say, well, here's the picture of the item. And like, if it's a pair of shoes and they're new, I'll leave one right side up and one upside down, and I take a picture of it, and I show that the soles aren't worn, and I show the quality. 
And I guess you could fraud that, but you've gone to an awful lot of issue. You could take the picture actually at the donation site. So I believe it gives you more protection, more cover, because the more you can document to the IRS that what you're saying is really what happened, the easier these charitable deductions will go. They've actually raised the amount that you can give to a qualified charity. It used to be 50% of your income. Now it's 60%. And again, if you're looking to max this, you need to get with your CPA and get all the details worked out so that you know what income counts, what income doesn't, and get it worked. But sometimes as people are older and they have a lower income, they actually can come close to maxing out that 50% deduction if they're downsizing. So if that's you, make sure you talk to your CPA and get it squared away. That way, you get the biggest deduction possible. Well, I can't believe how fast this show's gone again. I appreciate the fact you listened, and I'll see you next time. Be prosperous. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.